Come on, church, at four locations. Let's celebrate that. Woo, let's go. Come on. Woo. You know, you got a picture of why we exist as a church. Man, that's what we do. We, we say it like this, more and better. We want to be a church that reaches people far from God and a church that helps people grow closer to God and take their next steps. And through Gabe's story, you got to see how God intervenes in, in, in our mess and he restores us and he redeems us. And so that's why we exist, because of life change stories, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so welcome to Northridge Church. We're thankful that you're here, whether you're a longtime Northridge or you're a guest visiting us this morning. Man, we hope this feels like home to you, that you're welcomed. What feels like a crowd could become a, a family to us. I want to welcome our campuses at Webster, Greece, Henrietta, Aranakoit. Those of you who are watching online, thanks for being here this morning. And I also want to quickly just say thank you to our church. I know many of you on Wednesday were praying for my son Malachi. He had his second surgery on his mouth, his cleft lip and palate. Um, if you don't know, we adopted a boy from China about a year ago who had a cleft lip and palate and he's on his second wave of surgery he had it Wednesday and he's recovering really well in fact he's in our kids ministry right now probably wreaking havoc and I know it was uh it was going to be a good recovery when you know after surgery on Wednesday he had four popsicles and was watching movies he was living his best life so but I just really want to say, man, we felt your prayers. We're very thankful for you guys as you walk through us with this journey. So thank you for that. And, you know, as I watched my son and I, I just listened for the second time, Gabe's story, I'm reminded of the series that we're in right now called Picture Perfect Family and how God steps in the middle of my mess and your mess and he brings about redemption. And really that's what we're doing in this series is we're seeing, uh, we're looking at Jesus's lineage, his family. And more specifically, we're studying the women in his genealogy. And here's what we recognize from week one, and we're going to continue to recognize through all these weeks, is that these women's stories were messy, but the outcome was perfection. It's kind of the theme of our, our, our series is, man, the, the, these women's stories were messy, but we see this outcome was perfection, that Jesus used imperfect people. He used imperfect people like me and you, and he brought about the savior of the world. He brought about perfection. His name was Jesus. And last week, we, we, we studied a woman named Rahab. The Bible describes her as a prostitute, a woman who sold her body for power and influence and wealth, but yet she is an example for all of us as followers of Christ of what true faith looks like. Faith that doesn't just see the evidence of God, but believes in it like she saw it. And not only a faith that believes, but a faith that, that moved into action and changed the way she thought and the way she lived. And today we're going to continue in this series by looking at the actual first lady who was mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. We find it in Matthew chapter 1. We're introduced to her. It says this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar is the next woman we're going to be studying in Jesus' family. And as we look to Tamar's story, I, I kind of want to warn you up front. I, I warned you last week that if you like drama and reality TV, you're going to love today. Because there's three things you need to know about Tamar's story up front. Number one, it's wild and it's weird. I'm just warning you, you're going to read some things in the Bible today that you're going to be a little bit shocked that the Bible mentions and lists. 
You're gonna hear some words that you probably, if you have a, a young uh, kid in with you, you, you're probably not gonna want them to hear. I'm just warning you, it's kind of PG-13, almost R-rated type of stuff we're gonna be digging into in God's words today. The second thing you need to know about Tamar's story is if you don't understand the culture that she lived in, you won't understand her story. You'll just think the Bible's weird and it's crazy and it's, why would it include that? And if we don't understand and bog through the culture of her day, we won't, we'll miss it. But then the third thing I think you have to understand is this story is descriptive, not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is last week we looked at Rahab and, and Rahab was an example for all of us to follow. Her faith for all Christians, like we can be like Rahab. But Tamar's story is different. The Bible is just describing the events and circumstance that she went through. And by no means, as we look at her story, am I gonna say, hey, you should act and, and be like Tamar, because her story is descriptive, not prescriptive. And so if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 38 is where we pick up her story. Genesis chapter 38, we're gonna kind of plant ourselves here this morning. So I'd encourage you to grab your Bible, use the one we provide, turn to page 32, and let's kind of navigate this story together. Now in Genesis chapter 38, the first five verses actually introduce us to Tamar's in-laws. And they play a significant role in her family and her experiences and her circumstances. So I wanna introduce you to them so you have a, a full context of who they are. You see, her soon-to-be father-in-law's name is Judah. Judah is an Israelite and he marries the daughter of Shua who is a non-Israelite. And so they get married and they begin to have a family. They have three sons. The firstborn name is Ur, the second, <coughs> excuse me, is Onan, and the third is Shelah. Now you wanna kinda take a good look at that because to understand what goes on in her story, you're gonna have to understand that, that family tree. And so we pick up her story, and in verse six of Genesis chapter 38, it says this, Judah, her father-in-law, got a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, and na her name was Tamar. And so here we pick up Tamar's story where it, it is actually kind of a celebration. She gets married to Judah, his firstborn son named Ur. And so like a wedding in this culture and in our culture, it was a celebration, it was a happy time. And we don't know how long they were married before things get bad. We don't understand, we don't know the time frame. All we know is what happens a verse later. One verse later it says this, but Ur, her husband, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now again, we don't know how long this took. We don't know if they were married for a day, a year, a decade. All we know is what the Bible tells us. We know that Tamar's husband was so wicked in God's sight that God had enough of him and he removes him from the equation. He kills him, he puts him to death right there. We don't know if Tamar is excited, like finally got rid of that guy. We don't know if she was mourning. Man, to lose a husband. But we do know in this culture, if you became a widow, it wasn't really good for women in this culture because men dominated the world. And so it was very hard living for a widow. So her father-in-law responds. This is where the story gets a little bit weird. Verse eight, it says this. Then Judah, her father-in-law, said to Onan, the second-born son, sleep with your brother's wife, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, in our culture, we read this, and we're like, what? 
Like that is some weird, crazy stuff. Some of you are like, I knew the Bible was crazy. But again, I told you up front, if you don't understand the culture of Tamar's, uh, this culture right here, you'll miss the story. Because what's actually taking place is very normal in this culture. You see, when a widow's husband, when, when, when a husband died and, and a woman became a widow, the father-in-law in this culture was responsible to do two major things. The first one was he was supposed to produce a son that would carry on the line and the lineage of his dead son. But secondly, he was responsible to take care of his son's widow. That was what Judah, Tamar's father-in-law's job responsibility was. They called it leverage marriage right. Leverage marriage right. In fact, this was a law in God's chosen people named of Israel. They called it leverage marriage law. Here's what it meant. When a husband dies, his family bears the responsibility to ensure his line continues. And so that was Judah's responsibility. As the father-in-law to Tamar, he was responsible for one, providing a son through his second born that would keep his son's Ur's lineage alive. But then he was responsible to taking care of Tamar. In fact, this is what the Bible, the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into, her, go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. Now again, in our culture, this is nasty and weird. But in this culture, this was, this was just normal. This was how everybody lived. Even though this law wasn't in existence in this time frame, this was just part of the culture. It's how you took care of your family. And so Judah says to his secondborn Onan, he says, you need to take care of the responsibility for your brother Ur. Let's see what Onan does. Verse nine, story gets even weirder. It says, but Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Man, this is an awesome story, isn't it? <laughs> So Onan, his dad says, hey, you, you know what you need to do. And Onan took all the pleasure without the responsibility. And yet again, God wasn't happy. And so what, what did God do? He removed him from the equation. And I mean, for a second, you see the holiness of God here. I mean, you see God doesn't tolerate sin. And, and man, I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit glad God doesn't work this way today because I'm not sure I'd be here. But you see Onan not taking responsibility for, for what he should do for his brother. And so the story continues even farther. It says this in verse 11, it says that Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Sheila, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. And now this is where we believe the story gets good, right? This is kind of like, this makes sense. Judah, who's just lost two sons, is nervous that he's gonna lose his third son, and Sheila is too young to perform the duties that the culture set demands of him. And so he goes to Tamar and he says, hey, how about this? How about when Sheila gets older, I'll, I'll, I'll come and get you, but go live with your father. Now, in our culture, that sounds like a great deal. 
Like, go home to daddy. You know, daddy's princess is coming home. Like, hey, I kept your room just like it was. Like, come on, baby, I'm waiting for you to become home. At least that's how I treat my daughters. Like, hey, we don't change their bedroom. They might come home. You never know. But for Tamar, this wasn't a good deal. Because in this culture, to go home to your father after you got married was an insult to her family. She wasn't going home to be daddy's little princess. She was going home to be daddy's servant. She was no longer a member of the family, but she was a lowly servant in her father's household. This was a death sentence to Tamar. It was long and it was agonizing. Hey, go home, be with your father who will ignore you and neglect you, pretend like you're not his daughter and you will have to serve him the rest of your life. That's what it meant for Tamar. And for a moment, let, let's just kind of pause here and, and try to put ourselves in what, into the mind of Tamar and what's going on in her life. She's gotten married. Oh yeah, her husband dies. Oh yeah, he was really wicked. Her brother, who's supposed to do what is normative in the culture, abuses her, takes all the pleasure and neglects her. Her father-in-law, who's supposed to take responsibility for her, sends her away to her dad, who doesn't even want to look at her, and now she's a servant in her father's house. Who would want to walk through that life? Who would want to live in her shoes? And, and what's interesting is the Bible nowhere gives us any indication that Tamar did anything wrong. Nowhere is, is the Bible tell us, say, hey, Tamar is just getting what she deserved. These are consequences of God for her poor decisions. Nowhere does it say that. And you can imagine Tamar feels neglected, overlooked, abused, and to make matters worse, she probably feels like God doesn't care. God is just picking on her. She might even have looked up at God and said, hey, you know what, God, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, tell me, God, how, what, what mistake I made, what sinful choice I made for you to treat me this way. And at some level, I would bet that maybe we can relate to Tamar because we feel that way about our lives. Maybe our, circum our circumstances are different, but yet we feel like life is doing the same thing to us. Things get bad and they don't get better, they get worse. Like my life is just full of, of bad news after bad news. I walk through bad circumstance to bad circumstance. It feels like life is picking on me and when I cry out to God for help, he doesn't seem to care. Or at least he doesn't make it any better. That was Tamar's life. And I think we have to understand something about the world we live in and, and life in general. It's just because we choose to do the right thing over and over again doesn't mean life's gonna be perfectly fine for us. Here's the truth about life, is, is you can act rightly, but it doesn't mean life won't treat you wrongly. That's just the reality of the world we live in today, is we think if we choose to follow God, I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions about becoming a Christian, is we believe that maybe one of the reasons why we say yes to Jesus is because we believe that if we make him our forgiver and our leader, that he'll just take care of everything life brings our way. Like, if I just trust in God, my life should be pretty good. But the reality of life is, is we live in a sin-cursed world. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the first page, Genesis chapter 1, God makes the world perfectly, but yet two chapters later, Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, and guess what that does? It brings sin into our world, and guess what sin brings? Turmoil and difficult times, bad circumstances, pain and suffering. That's the reality of our world today. It is cursed by sin, and what that means is just because I follow God, just because I'm obedient to God doesn't mean life's not going to pick on me or treat me wrongly. My circumstances can be terrible, and I can live a godly life. That was Tamar. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say she did anything wrong, but yet if you look at her life, you would think, wow, she must have done something really wrong. That's the reality of the world we live in. It's cursed by sin, and we can act rightly, and life might just treat us wrongly. So her story continues, verse 12, it says this, after a long time, and I love that the Bible includes this because this wasn't like some short-term suffering for Tamar. This was day after day, year after year, decade after decade. She's in her father's house as a servant, grinding it out, probably wishing that it would end, that her suffering would just be flatlined. It says, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. So her father-in-law's wife dies. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up from Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enah, which is on the road to Timnah. For she, saw, for she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. This is the moment where Tamar takes her life into her own hands. And she hears through the rumor mill that her father-in-law, Judah, who is supposed to be taking responsibility for her, isn't. Sheila, his, his third son, is now grown up to perform the duties that he's supposed to, but yet her father-in-law doesn't give them to Tamar. And so Tamar decides to take off her widow's clothes. She puts a veil over her face to disguise herself, and she plants herself on the road to Timnah, knowing that Judah is headed that way to get his sheep that were sheared. And here's where the story gets even weirder. It says this in verse 15. It says, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave, it, gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And she left and took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. What a doozy. <laughs> Man, aren't you glad you showed up this morning? <laughs> I told you, if you like reality TV, here it is, because Hollywood can't produce this. So Tamar disguises herself, and she plants herself on the road, knowing her father-in-law is on the way. Now remember, his wife has died, he's just getting over the grief, and he sees Tamar, thinks she's a prostitute. And so he says, hey, how much is it gonna cost to sleep with you? And Tamar, in this shrewd way, kind of strikes this deal with her father-in-law. He, he says, okay, what are you gonna give me? And he says, I'll give you a young goat. And, and Tamar is shrewd enough to know that, hey, you're supposed to be responsible for me. I'm not gonna trust your word. And she says, hey, you need to give me something to prove that you're gonna give me that goat. And so Judah gives her his seal, his cord, and his staff. Again, cultural things that don't land in our head because we don't carry those things around. But in this culture, Judah giving up those things was significant. Because if a man lost his seal and his cord and his staff, all of his contracts would be null and void. A lot of scholars believe that in an Old Testament story where Jacob, where Esau gives up his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, it was very similar to those circumstances where Judah is giving up basically all that he has for a one-night stand. 
In our culture, it'd be much like us giving someone our passwords to all our bank accounts or our social security card for that one night of pleasure. That's ultimately what Judah is doing in this moment with his daughter-in-law. And so they do the deed and Judah doesn't know, but Tamar becomes pregnant. And in the next couple of verses, Judah goes to his friend and he sends him back to the location where he met Tamar to deliver the young goat that he promised. Here's the problem, is his friend can't find Tamar, the prostitute, anywhere. She's nowhere to be found. He goes and asks all the people in the town, hey, where's the prostitute that hangs out on the road to Timnah? Like, where is she? And everybody's like, there is no prostitute that hangs around here. Like, and so Judah's friend comes back and he's like, hey, uh, I can't find this woman anywhere. And so to save his own skin and, and to, not, to overcome his embarrassment, he just says, let's, let's not say anything about it. The story continues, verse 24. It says, about three months later. You know what happens after three months of pregnancy? You begin to show. That cute baby bump, Tamar can no longer hide the fact that she's been up to some promiscuous things. It says about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And so here, Tamar can no longer hide her secret. She's pregnant and she's showing. And it's interesting that in this culture, when the people who find out she's been involved in prostitution, they don't go to her dad, they go to her father-in-law. Why is that? Because he was responsible for her. In this culture, the father-in-law was supposed to take care of the widow, even though Judah's not doing that. And Judah, you see the the reflection of his heart because he hears this news and he says, hey, this is simple. Let's just get rid of Tamar. Now, it's interesting that Judah was very, oh, he was okay with sleeping with a prostitute. He just wasn't okay with his daughter-in-law being a prostitute. And you sh- it shows you where Judah's heart is, but then Tamar has this drop the mic moment. The one moment in Tamar's life where she wins, verse 25, it says this, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. I bet you that was an awesome moment for Tamar. <laughs> See if you recognize them, Judah. Oh yeah, they're yours, dude. I just love this moment. I'm like, yeah, Tamar, let's go. (laughs) Sorry. I get back to reading. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And you got to imagine Judah saw these things and his stomach dropped. So Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. It's kind of the wind down of Tamar's story. She's like, hey, this is your baby. So if I'm going to burn, you're going to burn. We're going down in flames together, Judah. Man, you, you, you look at the story that the Bible produces, and you're like, okay, that was interesting, full of culture, but what in the heck, how in the heck, is it maybe a better question, can that change my life today? I told you, I'm not going to tell you to leave here today and, and look and be like Tamar. That wouldn't be a good idea for any of us. But what can we learn from this story? And I have a couple things. One big picture thing. I think we have to recognize that, that, that God can use our difficult circumstances for good, even if we don't get to see it in our lifetime. And this isn't the most encouraging point in the world, but 
I, I think at some level, we all can relate to Tamar because we all walk through difficult circumstances. They're gonna look different than Tamar's. At least I certainly hope so. But we all walk through storms in life where the waves and winds of, of life blow on us. And, 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 and the truth is, is maybe that storm won't get any better. Maybe that there won't be actually light at the end of the tunnel for your bad circumstances. Things might not get better. The Bible nowhere promises us an easy life where all of our storms are conquered by God in, in this earth. And that was true for Tamar. Do you want to know how her story ends? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that after she drops the mic on Judah, that a knight in shining armor swoops down and he he grabs her and he says, I'll marry you and I'll love you and your children for the rest of your life. I know Hallmark would draw that up. (laughs) But that's not what the Bible says. All it says was that Judah wouldn't sleep with her again. And guess what Tamar does? She, She gives birth to twins. She's a single mom in a man-dominated society just trying to make it through. That's how her story ends. There's no light at the end of the tunnel for her. Her circumstances don't really get any better until thousands of years later, where through her lineage, God produces his son. And the truth today is, 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 is not encouraging as this is, you might be walking through difficult circumstances. And I can't promise you today that it will get any better here on earth. But I can promise you that there is hope through Tamar's lineage of Jesus, who in the midst of terrible circumstances provides hope for eternity. And God can use your difficult circumstances for his glory and his purpose, even though you might never see it in your lifetime. That was Tamar's story. She didn't get to see Jesus be produced by her lineage. No, that happened thousands of years later. So what does that mean for you and I in the day-to-day? If God can use my circumstances for good, even if I might not see it now, but it might be future generations, what does that mean I should do in the meantime? What does that mean for my life right now, today and tomorrow, when I face storms and hardships and, and messy situations? And I think all of us have to learn something that's very difficult is we have to learn to find value in whatever circumstances we face. We have to learn that in the midst of the storm, God has a value there for all of us to find. I mean, this is why the Bible, it says it doesn't, it says, it doesn't matter what circumstance you go through, what situations you deal with, there is value there. Look what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says. It says this, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. I love that word all because it includes everything. The Bible doesn't say give thanks when God is blessing you or when life is good. It says no, in the ups and downs, in the roller coaster of life, we give thanks in every situation. And just a month ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. And I'm just afraid that the church, Christians, don't, we, we really don't get what it means to be thankful. We've dumbed down Thanksgiving to turkey and football. By the way, trying to find value in bad circumstances, I cannot believe what happened on Thanksgiving. God, I'm trying to still find value in that. But the truth is, is I'm not sure I understand or we understand what it means to truly live in Thanksgiving. The Bible says we don't, we don't celebrate that once a year. We should live in that daily. 
no matter what we face, no matter what life brings, no matter what path God takes us down. The Bible says, in every situation and in every circumstance, I should choose thanksgiving. The verse continues. It actually says, this is actually God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what God wants from you and for you. And he actually gives you the purpose behind it. The reason why you can be thankful in all circumstances is because of what Tamar's story produces. He says, in Christ Jesus. I can be thankful, not because of the storm I'm walking through, but because I know because of Jesus, that storm one day will end because of my belief in him. This is hard, right? Let's, let's just all admit it. This, this is not easy to live in Thanksgiving every single day. And it's been hard for me this year. 2019, of all the years in my life, has been one of the hardest years I've faced in my life. It's been up and down, up and down. I've lost a Mima, a Gigi, and I'm not even sure I've kind of wrestled with that grief of not having them for the holidays this year. I, I'm not sure I've dealt with the pain and hurts that's there because I, I just rather ignore it. But then I've also, one of the, the guys I'm closest to, I call him my Southern dad, his name is Rodney. This year he was diagnosed with brain cancer and there are no treatments for him left. And so every day is just this waiting period of like, man, is he gonna make it? Is today the day? We, we, we just don't know. And so three months ago, I, I flew out with my wife to Atlanta to see Rodney and Cindy. They watch online every single week. Love you guys. And I thought, man, I, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be, you know, the pastor. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna give hope to this man who's been diagnosed with brain cancer. Like, you can do it, man. Like, let me pray over you and let me speak truth into your life. And I went to encourage him. And what I found to be true in Atlanta, when I saw Rodney, my Southern dad, I didn't encourage him, he encouraged me. Do you wanna know why? Because in the midst of a diagnosis that no one would ever wanna face, he found the value. He told me story after story of how brain cancer gave him an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel and people he would never get to interact with. Stories of how he got to tell people about Jesus, doctors and coworkers and physicians and nurses about the hope of Jesus. You don't know why? Because he had brain cancer. He found the value. And I just think today that we have to learn, I've got to learn that no matter what life brings me, no matter what path God takes me on, whether it's bumpy or smooth, good or messy or ugly, I learn to find the value of the storm, of the circumstances God has me. And maybe sometimes the value is just God's trying to teach you a lesson. Maybe he's trying to mold you and shape you to be more like him. Maybe he's humbling you. Or maybe the value is he wants to use you for the people around you. You have to learn. I've got to learn to find the value in the circumstances. But even beyond that, beyond Tamar's story and our story, the messy circumstances, I think what we see in this series and what we see in Tamar's story is, is God is a master at giving hope to the hopeless. He's a master at, in, in the hopeless situations where it doesn't think, where we don't think we can come back from this. God offers hope. And we see this in Tamar's story at the very end, verse 27, where it says this, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And one of those twins boys she gave birth to, his name was Perez. And from Perez came the line of Jesus, my savior and your savior, our redeemer. And because of Tamar's story and Rahab's story, what it did is it produced Jesus. And what Jesus produces for every single one of us today is hope in the midst of the hopelessness. 
It means that we don't celebrate Christmas and claim hope because there's a baby lying in a manger. We celebrate what this baby came to do, the radical nature that God sent his one and only son, not to be worshiped, not to be glorified, but to die. Why did he die? Because you and I were hopeless in the midst of our sin. Jesus, perfection, hung on a cross to pay my penalty, to step in my place, in your place, to give me what? Hope. To give me hope that no matter what I deal with here on earth, I have the hope, I bank on the promise that one day my pain and my turmoil and my difficult situations and my tears and my heartbreak will go away because of Jesus. And that's hope that outlasts any storm. That's hope for eternity, not temporary, but forever. And today that's what Christmas is all about. And I asked you week one, and I will ask you again week two, do you have that hope? Do you have the hope of the holidays of what Jesus came to bring? And let's dig a little bit deeper here. Because I think that's a surface level question. Maybe some of you today might say, but I have hope, life is good. But let's dig a little bit more into that hope. If tomorrow you wake up and God has a storm planned for you, where life gets really hard and difficult in the midst of that storm, will you have hope to cling to? If there's not light at the end of the tunnel, if things don't get better in your life, in your marriage, in your workplace, if that diagnosis isn't cured, if what you're walking through right now gets worse, will you have hope? Because the hope of Christmas really doesn't even truly start here on earth. It's a hope that will last way beyond earth a hope of eternity, that one day all the baggage, all the turmoil will be gone because of perfection had arrived, his name was Jesus. And so here's what we're gonna do. I know in the church, and when I say church, I mean people. There are a lot of people over four campuses and watching online who are right now dealing with difficult circumstances. And one of the hardest things to do in Christianity, and one of the weirdest things, Tamar's story is weird, but what's weird is to walk through pain and hardship and to be able to utter three words, it is well. And so our bands are gonna come and they're gonna sing a song. And, and they're gonna sing a song of, man, of truth, that man, no matter what I walk through in life, no matter what circumstances I face, through everything life throws my way, because of the hope of Jesus, because of what Christmas truly means, I can say these three words. It is well. So I'd encourage you to stay seated during this song, to take in these words, and no matter what you walk through today, know because of Jesus, it is well. Take a listen to this song. <laughs> 